So um, we're diving in back into Exodus, and we're going to be walking through this book of the Bible. It's, it's a fascinating um, book of the Bible. I have another map up here, one I want to keep in our mind where we're at. Uh, I will mention this. Um, there are a lot of options for um, Mount Sinai that people will give. One of them is north. Uh, I, always just, I always say I'll give you my opinion. I am a southern part of the peninsula, Mount Sinai. Uh, that's where I think they were at. The reason I'm mentioning Mount Sinai, I know we haven't gone through the Exodus yet, uh, but we're going to find Moses here. So I love to position us. Every time we're studying, I, wanna, I want you to kind of know where we are physically, because remember, here is the nation of Israel. They're right here. This is all of Egypt, and this is lower Egypt, and this is upper Egypt. And if you remember, and I'll, I'll chat through it a little bit, there's been some political tension over the centuries, uh, two kind of kingdoms and then back to one. And so you're seeing where they're placed. I just want to put this reminder before I dive into Exodus 3 and 4. Joseph placed his family in Goshen for a reason. And one of the reasons was that it was very fertile. But the main reason is that they could leave easily. Could you see how they can leave Egypt as lower Egypt? If they were placed down here, they'd have to work all the way through Egypt and come out. And so I do want you to see a little bit God's sovereignty and wisdom, Joseph's foresight hundreds of years before to place his family in a place where they can, one, agriculturally be successful, and two, to be in a place where they can leave easily without the resistance or the temptation all the way up. Now, I wrote uh, as an intro, this is Out of the Desert, Exodus 3 and 4, and we'll recap a little bit the first ones in a second, but have you ever felt like you're stuck in a dead-end job? And if your boss is here, don't raise your hand. That's the worst thing you can do. I wrote in here, I said, notice that I made sure Theron was not in the room when I asked that question. <laughs> He's like, yes, I feel like this is the worst place to be in the world. Um, or less drastic, have you ever uh, felt like you were in a dead-end conversation? I had a coworker. this is years ago. Um, I hope this doesn't make me a bad person, but I might be, I don't know. But this coworker, they, they would come into your office and they would just start talking and it would never end. You ever had that? If you bumped into this person in the hallway or in the barn or in the greenhouse, and I was working at the greenhouse at the time, it, it was just, and I'm not talking minutes, I'm talking, it was a 15 to 20 or 30 minute story. And so I implemented what I call the walk and talk policy. Um, I will talk with you while I'm walking, and when I can't hear you anymore, the conversation's over. That's <laughs> what I did. And you might think, Kenny, you're a bad person. Um, when I went back by, the conversation restarted. So I just want you to know this was, a, this was a relationship that worked in this situation. The only time this fell apart was when I'm in my office working and this person comes in. And now it's like, cool, do I just give up my desk and just leave? And that's what I did uh, in the end. I found work that needed to be done mobily uh, and walk around. But uh, that conversation <coughs> I knew would never end. And you're, you're stuck in something. Well, that is Exodus 3 and 4. It's very exciting, but surrounding it is this I call dead-end job, dead-end conversation that takes place because Exodus 1 and 2 is chock full of excitement. So you're, you're coming into Exodus 1, and God, in his wisdom, is he's inspiring Moses to write, and he's writing the history of Israel, and we've worked our way through Genesis, and we've seen Joseph die, and his brothers, and some generations, and then we dive into the people coming into Egypt again, fast forward hundreds of years, and then suddenly all the excitement is there. We see a Pharaoh that is oppressing a people. We see political maneuvering <coughs> back and forth. We see a people enslaving. Then we see them murdering. Then we see them engaging the people of Egypt in murder. And then chapter two is a woman who has a son who then says, I'm not going to kill my son. I'm going to protect my son. And a whole story where this son ends up the son of Pharaoh's daughter, who then still stands up for God's people and associates or identifies with them, uh, makes a huge, terrible decision, right? What does he do? He murders an Egyptian, and then he needs to flee Egypt because the Pharaoh is going to kill him. Uh, we'll get into some more as we dive into next week. We'll come back to history a little bit 
and dialogue a little bit more about the potential pharaohs that could be there. Uh, there is a lot of indication that um, the pharaoh that was after Moses at this time to kill him was actually uh, the female pharaoh. You, you pronounce it better than I do. I can think it great. It's just that saying part. That There you go. Tom has it there. She was a very interesting lady. Um, a lot of the Egyptian pharaohs married half-sisters. There's like generational marrying of half-sisters. Uh, so you see she's a half-sister married to her, her half-brother who gets sick and then dies. And then she marries her daughter off to a stepson of hers or, or because not hers, but someone else's. And then she rules and she takes over for 20 years. There's a lot of indication, at least historically, that possibly she is the ruling voice at this time, the one that's after Moses to kill him after he murders an Egyptian. And there's some interesting nuances that the Pharaoh that wanted you dead is gone. And if you look at Thutmose Third, so this is his stepmom who basically rules even though he's supposed to be ruling, when she dies, he literally wipes out everything that she had her hand on. So he goes into her special temple and gets rid of any statue, any statement. He had stepmother issues. It was apparent, okay? So he, he couldn't stand her. Well, everything she disliked, he was okay with. And so it's interesting that possibly this is a guy who would have allowed Moses back, but then he was also a person who didn't like to be told what to do. You can imagine 20 years of stepmother telling you what to do. She, was an she wore the Pharaoh's beard. I mean, she went all out. She was Pharaoh. And she would send, it was either her husband at the time or her stepson, they all were the military ones. So she made sure they went out on the campaigns. Thutmose III was militarily very good. So this, this gentleman was very successful in military campaigns. That was his area of strength. He was not as gifted in domestic handling of things. And that's what a lot of times the pharaohs did. They battled and came back, battled and came back. Actually, when she was ruling, they had a basically dual pharaoh, pharaoh on the battlefield and a pharaoh at home. And so there's some interesting nuances of why Moses could come back. You see some of the personality of Thutmose III of being pretty belligerent about not listening and being a god. He shared the godhead of Egypt with this woman, and she's gone now, and he's not going to want to share it with somebody. When Moses comes and said, let us go worship for three days, uh, and there's sometimes people say, well, that, he was being tricky because he really wanted to leave. Going out for three days, leaving Egypt, was a, a, a bold statement of, we don't worship your gods. You're not over us. This is our God. We're leaving. So there's multiple sides to that argument. I land on the side that they were making a point to Pharaoh that they're done here. That's what he, he knew they were finished to go worship. So here we dive into chapters three and four, which kind of from a launching point, chapter three, verse one, you're going to see him kind of fast forward through all that's taking place because it's 40 years now. And we're going to watch Moses in his current occupation of a shepherd and now, after all this time, he's going to fulfill his destiny. Now, remember, when he murdered the um, Egyptian, he did that because he associated with God's people. And think about that. He's trying to what? Be the deliverer. This taskmaster is whipping somebody. I'm going to kill him. I'm fixing it. The next day, or within a short period of time, what does he do? He comes up to another Hebrew and says, stop arguing. Who made you Lord over us? You see, so he's tried to be the deliverer on his own terms, and now he's been in the desert for 40 years. And I want you to remember, like, so there's two sides. Someone says, look, Jethro entrusted Moses with his most precious possession. Yeah, but before that, his daughters had to do it. So it's interesting to me that Moses, yes, was handling the, the, the possession of his father-in-law. This, this was their economy. Uh, there's some indication that the Midianites were miners as well copper mining, but there's more indication that they handle livestock. And so this is what they did. Obviously, if you have a bunch of daughters that are constantly getting bullied and this warrior comes in and now he marries your daughter, you're like, hey, why should they battle these guys all the time? You go out and care for the sheep. It's not like you go out and there's green pastures everywhere. It's not Ireland, right? So you go, you have to move your animals around. And so what we're going to find, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of the Midian, 
and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And so you're looking at where he's located. Now I can go back to the map. Um, to the Midianite, this is the backside of the desert. It's east. It's on the wrong, or west, one of those ones. It's on the backside, whatever it is. It's east or west, north or south. I'm not quite sure. You guess it, all right? Whoever knows, you get a piece of candy from the Moana store. But to them, this is the nowhere land. He has taken the flocks around, and he is at the backside of the desert. Now, a lot of people say it's the mountain of God. It wasn't the mountain of God because that's how people saw it. It's the mountain of God because this is where God is going to speak to Israel. And this is where God speaks to Moses. So I want you to realize Moses is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Exodus. And he's writing from his perspective, his, his viewpoint, right? Not, not from a past. He's not saying the place that became the mountain of God, it becomes the mountain of God because this is where he meets God and connects. And it's also where God gives the nation of Israel the law. By the way, after they go up here, there's only Elijah that makes a pilgrimage to Mount Sinai again. No one ever really comes back down here. It's an important mountain, but it's not something that, that's not even part of Canaan, right? It's up there that they end up. That's the promised land. So here he is, and, and one person wrote, um, he's, in a, um, he's in a profession that allows you to be curious. I'm not minimizing the job of a shepherd. It's a lot of work, but there's also a lot of downtime. So you can imagine, and I say here's where God is going to make a startling connection. That's the first kind of point we come to. This is uh, chapter 3. We're going to look at 2 through 10. Now Moses, again, is in a profession that will allow him to look. Um, he had time to figure out what's going on with that bush. It's not like he's like, I'm too busy to check that out. I, have, I need to watch the sheep walk. I can't, I can't look at the bush. The sheep are always walking. They're always moving. The goats are wandering. And so here he is. And so look at verse 2. I'm going to read... Um, Tonight, we'll probably read a lot of these chapters because just to be able to hear God's word and hear the story unfold. So, and the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And the indication here is that as this is a theophany, this is God um, coming in, represented in the fire. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. So that's unique, right? Anyone light a fire, it, it burns up the firewood and then you have to get more firewood and keep going unless you have a gas fireplace, the logs get burned up. So typically, if there's a fire, you see the bush get consumed. As a, as a person working through this area, a bush on fire, you don't want to see it spread, right? You want to know what's going on. It makes sense to check this out. Now, when you walk up and you're like, huh, that's burning, but it's staying. It's not going away. Well, that tells you that this isn't normal fire. So this is something that is unique. So he comes to it and Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt. And who is he talking to? Sheep. It's just, he's talking to himself right now. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. That's astounding. Don't lose sight of that miracle. Don't lose sight of a burning bush. And you're like, huh, that's interesting. We'll go see that. And then the bush talks to you. The fire comes and your speaks to you. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. And actually, this is one of the first statements in Scripture of holiness. And so God is communicating to Moses something about himself. He says, stop, because Moses is approaching, which is fascinating. God says, come here. He starts coming here. And God says, stop, take off your shoes. You're getting close to holiness, to perf perfect righteousness. And so you see him do that. And then he says, moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God which, by the way, is the correct response for when God speaks to you from a bush out of fire and then tells you you're on holy ground. He had the right kind of fear. We are more brazen and rebellious and arrogant, and we think that we can just go look at God and confront God and tell God what's going on. And Moses approached with humility, 
Um, and he goes on, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God is communicating what there? Relationship, omniscience, connection. That's what I, He's talking to Moses, to the guy who thought he was the deliverer 40 years ago, and now he's telling him I'm holy, and then he's starting to tell him how he has already connected with his people and the idea of relationship should be keyed up in our mind we're going to see this constantly and i am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the egyptians and to bring them out of the land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the canaanites and the hittites and the amorites and the perizzites and the and if i mispronounce something that's just the way i do it in my head and the hivites and the jebusites that would be people in jerusalem now therefore behold the cry of the children of israel has come unto me and again it's not that god wasn't listening before or didn't hear it whenever you hear god say i hear you it means god is acting on your behalf when it says the cry has come up it means this is prodding god to move and it's not that he was waiting to move like they're not crying loud enough i'm waiting it's just a way for us to connect and understand God. It's giving him human characteristics so that we can comprehend this change. This is all in God's sovereign plan, but he's speaking to you in very relational terms. I am now going to act on their behalf. I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I love that statement. So what did Moses try to do to deliver the uh, Israelites out of bondage 40 years ago? He killed a what? Egyptian. What kind of Egyptian? What was this Egyptian's job? A taskmaster. How high on the totem pole do you think that guy was? <laughs> he's, he's, not, he's not high. That, now you're going to go to the ruling king of the world, your known world. The most powerful person you could imagine. So God says, when you tried it, you talked to a private. I'm sending you to the president. You're going to go talk to Pharaoh. Who wanted to kill Moses? That's a, that's a disconcerting thought, right? I want you to get a grip on 40 years. Some of you can do this better than others. It's terrible. I know I say that, right? 40 years. That's not a short period of time. I have this encountered recently, like my kids legitimately think I'm old, right? That's, that's in their mind, I'm an old man, you know? And now I know how terrible I was to my own father. When I remember him turning 40, I'm like, wow, getting to 40, you know? What's next, retirement? You know, this is your mindset, right? When you're a kid, when you're 12 and your dad's 40, I don't even know how old I was, but whatever it is, close to there, it's just eons of time, you know? But it is a long time, right? He's 80 years old, half of his life he's been watching sheep, and now God says, I'm sending you back to Egypt, and I'm going to have you talk to the president, the leading ruling person that's there, the one that wanted to kill you. And in this connection that God has with them, he shows Moses some key things about himself. One, and don't miss this, God is holiness. He's not some pagan idol with these perverse habits and dispositions that you worship in any type of debauchery you can think of. He's holy. He is completely set apart. God at no time is aligning himself with the gods of Egypt. The plagues, when we see them, he is crushing them economically, religiously. He's eradicating any idea they may have that they worship a true God. But recognize this, when Moses is encountering God here, he's encountering God in his holiness, his set-apartness, his complete uniqueness. God made it really clear to Moses that he's God and absolutely nothing else is. That's a bold statement. And then God is making sure that we approach God in the way that we're supposed to approach God. But God was talking to Moses. And what do we also see from God? God talked to Moses from his holiness, his set-apartness. But he also spoke to Moses out of his love and compassion. Who does God talk about 
after he states his holiness? His people. And he speaks in terms of empathy and compassion and care and love, and he's promising the thing we know is going to happen. It's redemption and rescue. He's speaking as a savior. And so we see God in his holiness, and we also see God in his activity, in his action on our part. We see the compassion. I put here as an action step as we get to the next one, which is objections, objection. That's what we're going to see from Moses next. Uh, never forget that God is holy. As we approach God, it is easy to get caught up in who we are and neglect who he is. Never forget that God is holy. He's set apart. And then never forget that God loves supremely. God cares in a way that we cannot care. God cares for his children to a depth that we cannot attain to. And he even gives us our type of words so that we can connect with it, but we'll never reach how much God cares. Now, despite all the crystal clear proofs, Moses will still raise, and the word objection or objections is actually four that he lists here from 311. That's not a time. That's Exodus 311. All the way through 417, Moses is objecting to God. The great I am statement is an objection, an answer to an objection from Moses. I want to just walk us through these objections. I want you to see something as you look at these. And the last one is the worst one because <coughs> Moses is going to flat out rebel against God. His statement of I can't talk, pick someone else is rebellion. And God gets angry with him. And Moses changes his mind. So the anger of God brings about an activity that he needed uh, and, and he moves forward. And God still answers him, though. But there are four objections. The first one is found in 11 and 12. So I'm going to read that. This is the who am I objection. You're going to go talk to Pharaoh. Oh, who am I? Here he goes. And Moses said unto God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God says, and he said, certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And if you can't grasp some of the humor of God, I, I find this to be great. Have you ever had a kid say, you tell a kid, um, hey, let's go do this. You know, let's go do this chore. You don't say chore. It's going to be fun. And your kid says, how is it going to be fun? And you say, when it's done, you'll know. <laughs> Why should they do this? When it's over, you'll know. That's what God basically said. So what I love here, one, is don't miss the fact that God says, hey, to prove to you that I will enable you to do what I've told you to do, you're going to worship me when it's all done here at Mount Sinai. You're going to end up right here and you're going to worship. You ever wonder why maybe, maybe Israel's going right back down? Moses is still trying to prove God, maybe. Who knows? Let's see if we're going to worship at Mount Sinai. That's not the reason. I'm just throwing that out there. But God says to him, you want to know if you're qualified? When you're finished, you'll know you're qualified. You're going to worship me. You're going to worship me right here. Now, don't forget, what has Moses done since knowing God is holy? He's taken off his sandals. He's covered his face. It's all positions of what? Humility and worship, reverence. And he says, you're going to come back and all the people of Israel, your whole nation is going to reverence me here. That's the proof that I'm with you. The other thing that's really interesting is who you are is not key to doing what God asks. Who am I? And God says, I'll be with you and don't worry when you're done, you'll be worshiping here. In other words, when we ask the question, who am I? God answers, who am I? Who is God? And he says, I'll be with you. And don't miss this. What I say all the way through this relationship, actually in verse 12, I will be with thee is the same word I am. Same Hebrew word is used there. The I will be with you and the I am speak always to God's involvement with his people. And we'll talk about that on the next question. But when we ask or we raise the objection, who am I to do what you've asked me to do? God says, I'm going to be with you. And interesting enough, gives you a promise that's going to be a reassurance that received after the exit takes place. After it's all said and done, then you'll know. Then the next question comes, 13 through 18. 
Obviously, I've read from 14. It's a verse that's quoted in the New Testament. This is a verse of, of key importance. I do want to uh, preface this. A name in this culture means more than a name does to us. I mean, we can go to court and I can change my name to whatever I want. I can't because I'm married to my wife and she's not going to let me do that. But um, technically, I can go in and change my name to whatever I want it to be. I can change my last name. I can change my first name. I mean, people can go to no name. They can do whatever you want because a name is somewhat meaningless to us. That's a sad reality. A name to them was not just a label attached to you. It was a characteristic of you. So this question that's going to come forward, now Moses said unto God, so here's Moses, who am I? And God says, I'm with you and you'll worship me here. So the first question of my ability is answered not that I'll give you ability, but that God is able and he's with him. Then Moses has the next question, who are you? Who am I? You say, okay, it's linked to you. Great. Then who are you? How do I answer that question? And so then it goes here. Certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be it. That's, I did this one. Sorry, 13 going down. Um, and Moses said unto God, behold, when I come to the children of Israel and shall say unto them, the God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has set me unto you. Now understand, God is revealing more about himself in this name. We're going to dig into that a little bit more. And God said moreover unto Moses, thou shalt, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abram. Now, when we see something repeated over and over again, that should prick our ears up. What has God done multiple times? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then when you get to the people, I want you to say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is pounding in this truth into Moses' heart and to his mind because he needs to hear it. And he says, You're going to say this appeared unto me saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites. List all the names again unto a land flowing with milk and honey. If you want to mispronounce them, read them out loud or in your head. Um, That's how it happens, right? You keep reading in your head and then you realize you're saying it wrong. Um, I always say the first one to say it's right. Just go with that. Makes it makes it easier. Say it with confidence. Be bold. Verse 18, and thou, and they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has, hath met with us, and now let us go, we beseech ye three days' journey, unto the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And so I want you to realize something as we look at this. Moses says, Who do I say you are? And he says, You're going to tell him that I am, and here's other ways to look at this, I am the one who is. I am the existent one. So God speaks to the reality of who he is. Uh, Hebrews 11.6, if you're going to believe, you're going to believe in the existence of God. You have to believe that God exists and rewards those who diligently seek him. And he, and he does, actually. Um, you're looking here at the God who is, the God who exists, as distinct from all other pagan gods who do not really exist. God is emphasizing something. I am the only true God. He's the God of holiness, set apart, unique, and only. And now he says, I am the existent God. Don't miss the Hebrew that's there. As I mentioned, you go back to verse 12, and actually the verb, it's not the exact same word, it's the same root word. So Hebrew works from a lot more root words than we do, and you can trace the root. So you have a noun, you have a verb, and a lot of words build from that. So you, you, I always look at it as a honeycomb, but it's all connected, and you get this idea behind it. This is the same root idea from 12 is nested in I am. And so as you're looking at this, I will be what I will be. And this is an active component of this. So I am, I exist, and then I will be as in I will act, I will, I will function. I am the God who is and who acts, I will function on your behalf, is the idea. It's pointing to a God actively involved with his people. His is an active and committed presence 
to help his people. So when he says these words to the elders, they are hearing about a God who truly exists. This is not Ra. This is not Pharaoh. This is not the mosquito God or all the gods they've seen from all these cultures. It is the real living existent God. They don't make a statue for him, right? You don't carve an image for him. He is. And then the root of that word is, is an active root. It's this idea that he functions for him. So he is hammering home to Moses and to the people that I am the God who acts and I'm going to bring you out of affliction to a land of milk and honey, which is not a cultivated idea, right? You eat your milk from your goats and honey from wild bees. It's this idea of abundance and Canaan would be better land. And remember when they go survey it, it's beautiful, bountiful land. Then 18 is a promise. The elders are going to listen to you. The people of Israel are going to listen and hear this truth and understand it. I put here, in the middle of objections, there's a very interesting side note, 19 through 22. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. Isn't that fascinating? You're trying to reassure a guy who has objections, and in the middle of the objections, God says, oh, by the way, Pharaoh's not listening to you. The guy I'm sending you to is going to need a mighty hand. And I want you to recognize something, what God is telling him. Pharaoh is going to take my persuasion. It won't be you. You're functioning. You're accomplishing. You're doing the work. But it is going to be obvious that this is not a human effort. And then he goes on. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which... I will do in the midst thereof, and after that he'll let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor. By the way, it's not borrow like, hey, can I borrow your necklace? I'll turn it back in a hundred years. No, it's take, get, be given. Um, And of her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptian. Now, if you're loading things on your kids, what does that mean? You're getting a lot of stuff, right? And when he says you're going to spoil the Egyptians, it's not spoil them like here's an extra cookie. It is, I'm going to take every cookie you have, and the Egyptians are not going to be forced to do this. They are going to say, take all of our stuff. Now, what's interesting is that side note, and then there's going to be another corrective note coming in that God is going to be angry with Moses, but he's going to share with Moses Um, some more information. But Moses is given insight here, before it ever happens, that God is going to take the wealth of Egypt and put it on Israel. Now we keep going on. Um, Moses' mind is not at ease. He wants to know more. And so now in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, he says to God, how am I going to prove this? How do I prove this? First, it's who am I? And God says, it's not important. Then he says, who are you? And God says, that's very important. And he tells them all about it and tells them, they're going to listen to you. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. I'm going to be mighty. I'm going to work. And then Moses says, okay, but how do I prove it? How am I going to prove this? Now think physically now. He's had the spiritual answer now. And he says, how's my physical proof? And so Moses answered and said, but behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said to him, what is that in thine hand? And he said, a rod, normal shepherd's rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from before it. Makes sense. I hate snakes. Who here loves snakes? If Abby Beam was here, she would say, I love snakes. None of you hate snakes? I'm the only one that cannot stand snakes? Okay. I just want to see who's normal. I just want to know. Huh? It looks like I've lost. I'm like, oh, you guys go over here and the rest of you on this side, and I want all the people who are right in their mind to be on the right side of the room, all right? That's what I'm thinking. Um, he runs away. He doesn't want to get bit by a snake. Um, and then God says something interesting to Moses. Put forth thine hand and take it by the what? Do you pick a snake up by the tail? You don't pick snakes up. So that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> I'm trying to tell my kids, yeah, you missed it. It was a trick question. All right. God says, pick it up by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. That's pretty amazing, right? And then that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. Do you notice what he repeated again? 
who he is. Who is he saying it to? Moses. Why? Because Moses needs to hear over and over again that this is the true God. Then Moses, the Lord says, furthermore, he does a trick with his hand. He'll summarize, put your hand in, pull it out. It's covered in leprosy and, and it's white with leprosy. So it's probably not Hansen's disease. Leprosy covered all types of skin disease. So it is what we consider leprosy in our day and age. There's an interesting book. I read about that on pain, but it's horrible. Hansen's disease where it's falling off and they don't feel anything. They can cut themselves to their bone. Yeah, and it's terrible. This was a different skin. And then boom, it goes in and it comes back normal. That's pretty astounding in any culture, especially one that wouldn't have any indication of modern medicine. And then even beyond that, verse 9, it shall come to pass that they will not believe these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take of the water of the river and pour it upon the dry land, and the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. Now that's the first plague, right? We're seeing some of that come out later on. But this is for the Israelite elders. If they don't believe you, get water and pour out blood. Get water. He's not turning the whole river into blood. But if they need it, this is what you can do. And so he says, prove it. And he says, it'll be a rod to a serpent. It'll be a leprous hand. It'll be water to blood. It's all pretty crystal clear proof, right? Because if a guy starts throwing sticks down, they become snakes. I'm like, stop that. We believe you. You can do what you pick them up. You know, you need to pick up your snakes and get rid of them. And then we're going to go on with you. Um, They have all these steps to go from. And then Moses does what only Moses is able to do. And Moses said unto the Lord, I, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of slow tongue. And you see him accusing God. I've never been a good speaker. He's a good murderer, but you guess he's not a good speaker. And then he says, even since you've been talking, you haven't fixed it, basically. Even since now, you haven't, you told me I, that's all I need is you. Who, I, who am I? Nobody, but you have God. And I'm not a great speaker right now. He seems like he makes a pretty good lawyer type argument here um, in front of him. And the Lord said to him, who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? What does that remind you of if you think of a book of the Bible? Job, right? There's all these questions for God and God answers with, what have I done? Who are you and, and who am I? And, and notice something again. I'm not able, and God says, who makes a mouth? Who gives words? Who makes it possible to breathe, speak, or do anything else? God keeps coming back to, who am I? Because Moses is stuck on who he is, and God is saying, be stuck on who I am. And then um, God says this, this, now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. That's a pretty confident, right? I'm gonna, I made your mouth, I'm going to be with your mouth. 13, and this is just belligerence, and, and his, his objection is, I cannot speak. Um, and he said, O oh my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. And, and he's basically in 13 not saying, I'm going to go. He's saying, pick someone else. Send somebody else. I'll be with you. And Moses says, nah, pick someone else. I don't want to be on your team. I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. I don't trust you. You're the God who is. You're the God who's going to empower me. I've watched a snake, a rod turn into a snake, and a snake into a rod. I've seen my hand go leprous and come out clean. You tell me I can pour water and make it blood, and then you tell me you've made the mouth and you've made everything to speak, and you've told me everything I need to know, and his answer is, pick somebody else. I don't want to play on this team. And now you watch God get angry. And I put this as a corrective note, 14 through 17. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. And when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. And thou shalt speak unto him and put words in his mouth. And I will be with thy mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall do. By the way, that you there is teach you plural what you shall do. So God said, I will be with your mouth. And then he says, I'll be with both your mouths and I'm going to teach you both what you're going to do. And he shall be thy spokesman unto the people and he shall be even, he shall be to thee instead of a mouth and thou shalt be to him instead of a God. And thou shalt take this rod in thine hand wherewith thou shalt do signs. And so I find it fascinating because God is righteously angry with Moses who is being belligerently rebellious, right? You see, we, we, we recognize this where there's no argument against it. And Moses says, no, 
And it sounds like a toddler, right? You ever reason with a toddler? It's a waste of time. Is you can reason yourself blue in the face, and then they're going to still say no. Because reason doesn't matter to them. And, and God is righteously angry, and his anger turns Moses. The guy that hides his face from seeing God, now he's made God angry, and God made sure Moses knew he was angry, and he deals with it. Yet, what does God do for Moses? He shows mercy, doesn't he? Who does he send? Who has he already sent? And that's something that's interesting. Already on his way. I've already solved the problem you brought up that you thought was new, that I already knew was there, and I've already taken care of it. And even though Moses was dead wrong, God has solved the problem for him, and Moses knows now what God is going to do. Aaron, his own brother, is a solution. So now Moses asked Jethro to go back to Egypt. That's verse 18. And Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said unto him, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren which are in Egypt, and see whether they yet be yet alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. I just want you to realize culture. Moses had to get permission to leave his father-in-law. How old is Moses? 80. But in that system, Jethro is still in what? Charge. He has Zipporah, even though he's given, it to Moses, given her to Moses to be his wife, and Moses' children belong under Jethro's supervision. And so he seeks the supervision, a little different than Jacob, who just says, Sayonara, Laban, I'm out of here. Um, Moses asked permission and he's granted it. <coughs> and then 19 uh, through 20, he heads back. And the Lord said unto Moses and Midian, Go, return unto Egypt, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. That's another reassurance. Remember, he was in Mount Sinai. It's not Midian on the backside of the desert. He's now in Midian. And God says, Everyone who sought your life is dead. It's over. And Moses took his wife and his sons. By the way, that's plural. He had a son we knew about. We haven't heard about Eliezer yet. But obviously he has his son already because it's a plural sons and sent them upon an ass and he returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. What are we seeing? We're seeing obedience, taking his families, moving on. Now, (coughs) we're driving to what is ultimately happening, which is participation. But I love these next verses and I'm running out of time, so I'll talk even faster. Uh, 21 through 23 is yet again God sharing what he's going to do. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thy hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. And before there is a single plague in Egypt, Moses already knows how God is going to end it. And I want you to see God owes Moses nothing. God does not have to tell Moses what he's doing. But we see here, as we come to the last plague, and not tonight, obviously, that we're going to see the firstborn killed. And a lot of people will look at God, how bad is God, how terrible is God. God has warned and told them, and he's showing them, you've afflicted my firstborn, and I'm going to take your firstborn. And by the way, it's not just Pharaoh's firstborn, it's all of Egypt's firstborn. Uh, Who participated in the murder of all the men, children in Egypt, chapter 1? All of them. After the midwives wouldn't kill him, he said to all the Egyptians, you throw them in the water. So everyone's participated in the attack on Israel, and now we're seeing a promise of what's going to take place. What we're going to close out in chapter 4, and I'm going to move quickly through this, is participation. 1, 24 through 26 is a unique few verses. Uh, Seems completely random, but I want you to understand it's family participation. What happens is, as they're going, and it says in the inn, that's an unfortunate word, there was not inns in the desert. It wasn't like, oh, comfort suites, here we go. You know, it was a place to stop where it might have been more protected for travelers. They're there by themselves. They stop for the night and the Lord met him. The implication is it's Moses and sought to what? Isn't that fascinating? God's going to kill Moses. And I want you to realize why, because Moses is still disobedient. Israel is set apart. What are you supposed to do when your baby is eight days old, circumcised, and one of his sons is not? Now, I think it makes a lot of sense that Gershom was and Eliezer was not, or maybe Gershom 
wasn't and he was the only one there it just seems unique to me because both of them would have been pretty grown at this time it seems that there was tension in the family and one or both of those boys were not circumcised then zipporah took a sharp stone which would have flint and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said surely a bloody husband art thou to me i want you to recognize something from her this is not a woman who is wanting to obey god I'm not blaming her for the son not being circumcised, but she would have been the instigator behind him not being circumcised. And it's obvious by their arguing in front of us. But God is saying something, and I put as a takeaway, Moses' family was not up to date, and it was obviously a rebellious position or one of laxity. So it's either complete rebellion, or it's one where Moses says, wow, how important is it what God says? How important is it to do what God says? He says the circumcised who are set apart. How important is that? What did God tell him? That's pretty important. You're my deliverer and I'm going to kill you because your family is not doing what you're supposed to do. You are not set apart. And here's a takeaway. God expects us to live out what we are about to preach about. Let my people go. And God says, well, you better be obedient and be doing that. And I'm not pretending that this is easy to understand. People have gone all over it. I just, as we're walking through this, this idea of obedience is apparent to me. I think there might be more to this. It's the living word of God. You keep digging. But the idea that he had not had his family where they're supposed to be. He is identifying with God's chosen people. He is God's chosen people. And his sons should have had the symbol or the mark of God. And they didn't. When did Abram obey when he got the command? And everybody, and don't, don't think it was just Abraham and Ishmael, everyone in his house. How many people did he muster to rescue Lot? You imagine a guy like Abraham gets the command, it seems out of blue, not necessarily out of the blue, and he makes four to 500 men get circumcised that day. That's how, that's how much he treasured God's command. Moses has blown 40 years. Or 30 or 20. God's serious about that. Then 27 and 28, you see Aaron come, and the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses and, and take the timing. When did God tell him? Before he ever argued with Moses about being a part of it. Aaron's been sent. He's got a journey to make, right? Obviously, the, the, the system was not a prison camp, right? There was obviously, Israel had to accomplish certain tasks. Aaron's able to sneak out, but he's got a ways to go, doesn't he? To meet him down around this area or up in here. He's got some traveling to do, so God's already sent him. And what I put here is Aaron's participation. He's ready and willing to be a part, just as God promised. And then 29 through 31, Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people, what? Believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, again, it's not like, hey, God's here. Let's get him coffee and some biscuits or whatever you give him, cookies. It's this idea that God is now taking action. They're not accusing God of being disconnected. They're just seeing God is now acting. This is physically taking place right now. He's visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction. Then they, what? And worshiped. I want you to notice something. They rejoice in worship and knowing the involvement of God. Uh, as Moses moves back to Egypt, it culminates in worship. Now, the people are not the most rock-solid people that you're going to come across. So they're about to meet a bunch of hardship. They're about to grumble against Moses. They're going to say, you haven't helped us at all. Their affliction is so great that they can't see past it. But in this moment, what do we see? A grounded connection to their Lord and Savior. An expectant joy in seeing him care and work on their behalf. And again, I've run over my time. A couple thoughts, and then we'll break up into groups to pray. I want to put down, do we approach God recognizing his holiness? Do we come to God with the idea that God is set apart, that he is unique, that he is only, that, that we are not God and he is God? That is what we're supposed to know and be aware of when we approach God. Not because he doesn't want us to get near, it's just that we approach God God's way. And that's important. Do we find excuses and lackings instead of relying upon the Almighty? When you know what you're supposed to do for the Lord, do you find reasons why you're not good enough to do it? Or do you rest in Him 
and who he is to accomplish it. I, I look at this in a, in a broad base because um, we look at our world and let's be honest, it doesn't look great, right? The way people are, how they think, the, the I mean, I don't know, some of, some of you that are my age, in their 40s, right? You remember being a teenager? I mean, where we've progressed on the sexuality issue is shocking. In our lifetime, in a short period of time from being a teen to being, as my kids say, old, um, I've watched our society view morality in a completely different way. It's just shocking to me. And in the last five years or six years or ten years, I don't keep track of the years, where we're at right now in perversion is, is mind-boggling, right? You, you look at what's taking place. You can read any article with who competes in women's sports and people switching. Uh, so, well, I'm going to be a girl now. I'm, I'm this. I'm nothing. I'm How ridiculous, right? And I wonder if God looks down and says, what in the world? He's never surprised. But we look at a world where we think, how in the world can we shine a light here? And the answer is because of God, because of the Almighty. Actually, the New Testament says the darker basically it is, the brighter you will shine. So truth shines bright in the pitch blackness that we see crushing in. But how, what are you focused on, right? Watch how you think. I, I, I find myself staring at the pitch darkness and saying, how can we shine a light here? Instead of fixating on, wow, the light is bright here. Wow, it's shining. And so who are you fixated on? And are you looking at your lackings or are you resting in the Almighty? And then I put here, do we have our life and family lined up with what we preach? Well, let's get a little more personal. Are my hobbies lined up with what I preach and what I say and how I live? Are my interests lined up with what I preach, say, and how I say people should live? Is my life in line with what I'm saying is important, or, and we'll get into this in spiritual boot camp, but does my life line up with what God's Word says? 